In today's episode of the Amon Wire podcast. When we begin to tell Black women's stories and when they become the image of Islam in America, one, you know, we are resisting this idea that Islam is foreign because Black women built this nation, you know, alongside their men. And, and second, uh, we're also defying the image of Muslim women as oppressed. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Iman Wire podcast. I'm Salim here with the Iman Wire. Uh, today we have uh, as our guest uh, Dr. Jamie Lee Kareem, who is an internationally known lecturer and award-winning author, and uh, she holds a PhD in Islamic studies from Duke University. She was previously an associate professor in the Department of Religious Studies at Spelman College, where she taught courses on Islam for six years. Dr. Kareem specializes in race, gender, and Islam in America, and is the author of two books. The first one, American Muslim Women Negotiating Race, Class, and Gender Within the Ummah, and Women of the Nation Between Black Protest and Sunni Islam. And welcome, Dr. Kareem, to the podcast. Welcome. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for joining us today. Um, so, you know, Dr. Kareem, uh, just as a means of introduction, it's, it's fitting that we discuss your research today when we're in the season of Hajj, which is the annual pilgrimage to Mecca, because um, as anyone familiar with Hajj can test, one of the core elements of it is in remembering and emulating uh, Hajar, who is the wife of Prophet Abraham, uh, the, the, the mother of Prophet Ismail, and from whom Prophet Muhammad descended, as she is our uh, spiritual mother. And Hajar was, of course, um, an African woman. And as as one thinker reflecting in this said, every human being, whether they're a man or woman, white or black, rich or poor, of every social status, they, they must learn from her and follow in her footsteps, even quite literally, to elevate themselves um, spiritually. And this is important to take a note of because, you know, generally when we're speaking about the history of humanity, if we look at broad categories, um, you know, who's faced more difficulty, who's been silenced or marginalized more by their fellow human beings, um, it's women as compared to men. It's Africans compared to other groups. It's believers in one God even compared to others. And so as this scholar said, Allah chooses and ennobles Hajar, who represents all of those underserved, undervalued categories. Um, he, subhanahu wa ta'ala, he takes what we as human beings have historically made invisible, the woman, uh, the African, uh, the Muslim, and he makes them visible to the highest level possible as an exemplar uh, for all time, actually in the form of Hajar in this example. So by taking that as an introduction here, I mean, this connects spiritually with much of your work because much of your work has been to shed light, to make visible the experiences and narratives of Muslim women, particularly black Muslim women that we tend to ignore. So before we get into the meat of that discussion, before we get to talk about your research in your book, uh, it'd be good to hear a little bit about your own story, you know, growing up as they did, growing, uh, growing up in Atlanta. Um, Atlanta is known for its African-American community, but also for a very strong and rich tradition of and diversity of the African-American Muslim community. So uh, maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about that, growing up in that community. Yes, thank you. Such a, a beautiful introduction. I, I grew up in a community with roots in the Nation of Islam, the leader of our community, the national leader, was Imam Wati Muhammad, rahimahullah. And um, my parents, they joined the Nation of Islam in the 1970s. So they followed Imam Wati Muhammad and that whole community followed him into Sunni Islam. And so I, and also our uh, Wati Muhammad community was 
sort of like a beacon across the nation. Uh, we thrive particularly because of um, the school, the Muhammad schools, the elementary and then high school that we had. So that attracted a lot of Muslims, particularly African-American Muslims in the city who were not necessarily a part of the Warabdi Muhammad community. So for instance, um, the Imam Jamil Amin's community is in Atlanta. So we would have a lot of people coming to our school because they wanted their children to have a Muslim education. So, um, and then also we had many people from across the nation coming to our community for the school. So um, I, I did grow up in a very unique and special community where uh, Muslim life, African-American life, was thriving, uh, where our identities as Muslims and African-Americans was celebrated. And uh, I, I always had before me models of exemplary faith and, and strength and piety uh, in particularly the women, the mothers of our community. And so um, certainly that inspired the work that I've done. And, um, you know, just, we'll talk about it more, but just, you know, in the way, in the image of Islam that is portrayed in the larger media, and particularly the way that women are portrayed, there was a striking contrast in what I saw in this very vibrant community that I grew up in. And so um, that definitely inspired my work to, you know, change that image or really, you know, show people who uh, Muslims are, African-Americans are, African-American Muslim women are. So, um, yeah, so just, I was just really blessed to be in a place where um, I just developed this great pride to be an African-American Muslim woman. And um, you can't take that for granted. So Now, were you centered in, so you were centered in the, um, I believe it's the Masjid al-Islam in Atlanta? Right. Yeah, the Orthi Muhammad uh, um community masjid. I think that's the biggest masjid right there in Atlanta, right? Exactly. Right, right. right. Uh, mm -hmm. And so you were, so you basically grew up there? I did. And I grew up there and I went to um, the Muhammad schools all my life, right? So my father is from Atlanta and my mother is from D.C. And they met and became Muslims under Elijah Muhammad in D.C. But then they, by the time, um, you know, I was, I was born in Savannah, Georgia, but when I was still a baby, they moved back to Atlanta. And so They've been there ever since. And so, yes, I went to the Muhammad schools. And in fact, um, you know, the, well, so, right, well the, the, actually the Muhammad schools had just reopened when I started pre-K. So, so the Muhammad schools, and, and actually they call it Muhammad schools now, but it was called Sister Clara Muhammad School. And, and I think it's still referred to as that way. So, um, but just like, because we have we had Sister Muhammad School and Warthi Muhammad School, so they just call it Muhammad Schools. But I really like to amplify and bring out Sister Muhammad School. So that's what it was, was what we called it. And they restarted in 1980, uh, and just when I was starting school. And so the, the Sister Muhammad School was originally the University of Islam, which was the school that came out of the Islam. So it's interesting that the school reopened uh, in 1980 when I started, and then the school gradually started to add a um, high school grade. So for a long time, it just went from, you know, it was just elementary. But um, when they started, they started to add a grade each year and I was in that second graduating class. So the point I'm trying to make is that I was 
there and a part of a really, um, you know, amazing development in our community, a very precious time where there were, we were pioneers. Our parents really were pioneers in creating the school, but we as the students were also. So. Now you're talking about the pride that you felt in that community. Mm-hmm. Was that pride from being in specifically the, the community of Imam Wurtin Muhammad in that you had this long history, this heritage, you had this, the community going through this journey from the nation of Islam into uh, Sunni Islam uh, and continuing to grow and grow? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, there are different layers to it. I think one is, you know, pride foremost in being African-American. And and I, the reason I say foremost, what, what I mean by that is that um, particularly the time when I was growing up, that was the identity that that was still most um, marginalized and discriminated against. And so that that was the identity that it was important for our parents to to nurture in us and teach us that, you know, we are beautiful no matter what society has to say. That, um, because again, that's, they were definitely coming from that sort of struggle. Um, that's the struggle that brought them to Islam, right? And so... Of course, that the struggle had changed, right? Uh, but still, and, and as, as, it, as we see today, that, that, that struggle persists, right? So, um, you know, even though Islam wasn't popular back then, like in the 1980s, there wasn't a type of Islamophobia that you today, obviously. So that's, so that's why I, I say that was like the foremost um, struggle and the, and the foremost work was done in creating that type of pride. Uh, but also along with that, of course, it was um, developing uh, the Muslim pride, you know, that they just went hand in hand. And and also there was a vision that Imam Warthi Muhammad had where he understood that our Muslim identity, um, you know, was at risk. Uh, you know, he understood that it was critical for us to be um, identified as as Americans. So he understood it was critical for Islam to be accepted and not only accepted, but, you know, embraced in the United States. And so I don't know if he ever envisioned this day <laughs> and what we're struggling with today, but he definitely had the wisdom to prepare us to be able to say, yes, we are Muslim and we are bona fide American. And, and certainly, um, I, you know, after 9-11 happened, we, we really could appreciate that kind of preparation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when I, when I, I guess what I meant to allude to earlier in terms of the pride was, I guess the pride in being a pioneer in, in American Islam. Being, uh, and I, we'll get into this because I really want to talk about Imam Muratin Muhammad as well, um, in how he himself and his vision was, was uh, very pioneering and very unique. And a lot of the things that he was uh, saying back, you know, 30, 40 years ago, um, are things that we're just coming to terms with now, you know, in terms of about how you say about being bona fide Americans and, and how we interact with the general American um, public. A lot of those things were not accepted by, uh, especially amongst immigrant communities, immigrant Muslim communities, which has contributed to what I think we'll get into a little bit later about sort of the parallel path of the immigrant Muslim community and the Warthi Muhammad community. Uh, but before we get into that, I mean, just to backtrack a little bit, um, 
So uh, you grew up in, in Atlanta, grew up in the, the Worthy Muhammad community. Um, and as we were talking about, there's this great diversity also in the African-American Muslim community in Atlanta. You mentioned the Imam Jamal Amin's community, the Dar es Salaam community. W- there, was there a lot of um, interaction between those communities growing up? I would say so, right? I mean, we definitely had some differences. Um, generally, the Imam Jamil's community was more influenced by immigrant thought in certain ways. Uh, and in certain ways, not so. But even, I would say, in superficial ways, they definitely were. So, the, for instance, the way that the women dress, and that is something I really in, um, explore in my work. So that stands out. And probably even in level of education, you know, um, I, I think it's just very, they're very similar, but you did find that there was a kind of a, um, there was just a greater emphasis on education in our community. But at, at the, having said that, at the same time, that's, it was also education that actually brought uh, many people from Emmanuel Amin's community to our community, like I had mentioned, through the school. And, um, also, you know, our communities are just like 10 minutes apart, the two, the, the mosque, okay? So uh, they're both kind of on black sides of, the, of town. Uh, and so just again, because of like the relative proximity and then the similar types of, you know, struggles and aspirations that our parents had in terms of raising African-American Muslim children, and, and just being Muslim, you know, during Ramadan, the communities made an effort to come together with, you know, via iftars. So, um, you know, there, so there was some natural interaction there. And it has just amplified, you know, 10 times as much now, I think, just because uh, of um, the, the, the recognition that uh, our survival really depends upon our unity, but also just the way that the men and women in my generation end up marrying each other and um, and also, you know, did go to school together and things like that. So even like college. So you definitely did find that that level of interaction. Right. Um, so speaking of college, uh, so what was it that I guess crystallized your interest in going into Islamic studies? So was it something that you thought of like before college? Was it something that you explored when you were in college before when you decided to go that path? Exactly. It was in college. I went to school. I majored in electrical engineering. I have my 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 bachelor of science or in electrical engineering. And um, what I discovered, I actually discovered Tisawu at at Duke. And so, and that was because so Sufism. It's at that at that time. It may still be, but at that time for sure, Duke was the premier institution to go to for the study, uh, one of them, to go to for the study of, of Sufism. So, you know, you have people like Omid Safi there, right? We were um, cohorts in a sense. He was a few years above me. Um, so, I mean, I just really did kind of, um, I was introduced to a new version of Islam in many ways. So one from the academic perspective. So to back up a little bit, so I majored in electrical engineering, but when I saw that there were courses in Islam offered, I decided to take advantage of that. So that's how I started to learn about Sufism in academic context. But also through the MSA, many of the graduate students who are in the Islamic studies program, uh, you know, they, they were studying, the Muslim graduate students were studying Sufism and also kind of embodying it. And so um, that was really a very lovely experience. 
uh, just being in their company. And then with the undergrads in general, um, the majority of them were of Arab or South Asian background. And, um, you know, I saw the most beautiful aspects of their culture coming through in our interaction, just, you know, the generosity and um, hospitality and just also, again, you know, being minorities on the campus, just coming together. And so um, so that that was wonderful and lovely. But and then also, though, there were the struggles as well, because. Uh, again, that was a time before 9-11, before Sherman Jackson's book as well, because I think Sherman Jackson played a critical role in changing the way that we thought about, or think about the Nation of Islam and the Warthi Muhammad community. But so that was prior to that. So we did get a lot of questions and also resistance uh, about um, the Warthi Muhammad community. And, we, you know, people often talked about him as being too American. One, I remember one MSA student saying, you know, he puts the... America into the Islam rather than the Islam into America. <laughs> and so it's like defending ourselves in relation to those kinds of comments. So it was both sweet and a little bitter. <laughs> yeah. So, and I think you've written about this in terms of experiences with, uh, with immigrant Muslims in, in say, uh, in say college, um, which probably resonates with a lot of African-American Muslims. Um, for example, the, criticism for being, if you will, being too black uh, in its um, in its approach or in its focus, um, or um, the the frustration that uh, I think you've mentioned about having to, to, to almost prove that you're Muslim, um, to prove your Muslimness to them. Yeah, you know, I, I, one way I've written about it in terms of, you know, what defines a cause as a Muslim cause. And 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 that's really relevant now. But uh, you know what was a Muslim cause was 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 the Palestinian cause was the Bosnia the Bosnian War was going on when I started at Duke. So you know those were the legitimate struggles that we should you know care about and 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 do justice work around. But no one understood or saw the white supremacy and and the the black liberation struggle as a Muslim cause. And I mean, at that time, you know, I don't think those kinds of conversations were as vivid as now with the Black Lives Matter movement, but for, they were still at the forefront of my mind. And, and, and because, because um, coming out of the Nation of Islam history, right, the, the struggle for Black liberation, that has always been part of my um right so there was definitely a disconnect the way you know the way that it would come up though why it was kind of immediate at that time we had a unique um opportunity where the imam of the warthi muhammad community in durham nashir al-razak uh, he was very much active with the msa he would have been like a chaplain Back then, they didn't have that position, but that, that's kind of the role that he served. He would come to our, you know, e e meetings. He also brought Imam Warthi Muhammad to the campus. I think at least four times in the, I don't know, I was there for eleven years, so in that time span, at least four times. And um, I remember, and he he often he brought him like through campus life, so he would have funding from different organizations. I the last time Imam Muhammad came. He, um, the Jewish Center sponsored him or they hosted him. And I just remember these conversations where 
the other MSA students just couldn't understand like even like why why he was relevant or they I think they really I think they were surprised at the level of attendance uh, at Imam Muhammad's lectures. So, so yes, I, so I, I think that was where we might have some of those conversations where, right, of course, he, in many, in his lectures, he would talk about the legacy of his father at times. And so many people just couldn't get, you know, why that was relevant and important and why he was this important spokesperson for Islam. So they weren't valuing it, even though, you know, these liberal white people were. So that was interesting. So, um, you know, speaking of Imam Rafti Muhammad, maybe we can, we can, I guess, get into a little bit about uh, what led you to write um, the book about, uh, primarily about the history of the nation of Islam through the experiences of, of the women you interview in the book. And I guess to begin that, I, I think you cannot have a discussion about the Imam Rafti community um, or Imam Rafti Worthy Muhammad himself without talking about um, Sister Clara Muhammad. So maybe for some of our listeners who uh, may not be aware um, of some of the history, maybe you could touch a little bit about the significance of, uh, of Sister Clara Muhammad in uh, the nation of Islam and how that played a role in um, shepherding um, through Imam Worthyin, the transition of nation of Islam to, um, uh, to uh, Sunni Islam. You know, Sister Clara Muhammad, I really like to call her one of these great women in Black history because uh, she did play an important leadership role in the in the nation of Islam. Uh, in the early years of the nation, well, even before the nation was founded, a story we really like to share is that, um, so Sister Clara Muhammad, Clara Muhammad, her name was Clara Evans. She was from Georgia. And her husband, Elijah Poole, at that time was his last name, Elijah Poole. They were both from Georgia. And, you know, they just experienced some of the struggles of Jim Crow life there. Um, Elijah Poole, he actually witnessed the lynching. And so, um, you know, these harsh realities led them to do what many Southerners, Southern Blacks did, and that was to migrate north. They migrated north to Detroit. And um, they were really struggling there as well. Uh, you know, Elijah he could not find a job and they had uh, five children at the time. And so uh, in the midst of this, you know, economic hardship, there was a friend of Clara who told her about this um, prophet, this man who was coming around and telling black people that they were once royal and, you know, that, that this, what they're, their conditions in this country doesn't represent, you know, who, who they really are and where they came from. And so she decided to go and listen to this man. And this man is who is the man who becomes known as um, Farad Muhammad. And so Farad Muhammad, you know, his identity has really been um, in mystery for many historians, but many believe that he was actually South Asian. But at the time, you know, they didn't know that. And so um, basically he was the one who brought this ideology of the nation of Islam that, you know, the black man is God, that black people were originally, their original religion was Islam and that he was coming to, um, you know, to, to re, um, reunite them this, with this religion, right? And so, um, so she was the one who actually brought her husband to the meeting to hear this message from Farad Muhammad. And, and apparently that one meeting was enough where um, Elijah Poole was, um, you know, mesmerized and he became an ardent follower 
of um, Farad Muhammad. So in many ways, the nation, you know, would not have even existed without this kind of, um, you know, kind of leadership. And then she was able to then show her leadership again, you know, once um, Elijah Muhammad became the leader of the nation because Farad disappeared. And um, between the, the mid-1930s and 1940s, Elijah Muhammad was actually in hiding at times because of rivals that wanted to take his position as leader. And also part of that time, he was in prison for draft evasion. So she actually emerged as like an interim leader of the Nation of Islam. And so, and it's really significant. I mean, one of the main things that she would do is that she would basically, uh, you know, visit Elijah Muhammad and kind of was sort of like a messenger, you know, be, you know, um, delivering messages, conveying information between Elijah Muhammad and followers. But also I, I like to see her even beyond that, that, or, or I should say that in the process of doing that, she must have showed enormous, um, vision and faith and resourcefulness. Because at that time, the Nation of Islam was really a fledgling group. It didn't really have the numbers it would later have with Malcolm X. And many Black nationalist movements uh, did not survive. There were many, and many of them did not survive. So I think it really is telling that she was really able to maintain the, that organization in that really fragile time. So um, those are you know, those are important ways that she stood out. But also um, the, the other important part of what she did, and that's the legacy that we talked about already, and that is the Sister Clara Muhammad School. The Sister Clara Muhammad School was originally the University of Islam, and she was, um, the University of Islam, it was, it was. I understand the idea of Farad Muhammad, this idea that, you know, you have your own religion, you should be educating your own children. But she was the first um, teacher of the University of Islam. Um, you know, many people, you know, celebrate her because she was essentially homeschooling her children when homeschooling was illegal. And uh, there's a story about how law enforcement came knocking at her door. She um, stood her ground and she resisted. And she told them that she said, I will die as dead as the doorknob before I allow my children to attend public school. So um, this, again, just shows, you know, her level of courage and um and strength and um, and faith again. And so, and out of that, you know, that first act of resistance and this decision to educate her own children or, you know, to, te- yeah, to, to educate her children, she, we, this, this university, this um, school system developed and it developed throughout the nation. And this was quite remarkable. Because um, I, I mean, I, I haven't fully done the research, but I really feel like, especially for like um, elementary level, like you didn't have black schools with that type of network. You didn't have a system of black independent schools. I think it was unheard of, you know. And so uh, it, it was quite remarkable for us for her to be a pioneer in that way. Of course, she's also the mother of uh, seven children, correct? Right, so she's the mother of seven children, and right, and also, so, and no, she's the mother of eight. Eight and, children, um, okay. Warthi Muhammad was the seventh, right, and so she definitely had a, a very special relationship with him, and he very much uh, was influenced by her, right? Like he, um, he talked about how he would just spend time in the kitchen with her, and just you know, again, just um, her level of dedication to her family, and just her level of character. He talks about 
how she was a Christian. Her her roots were Christian. That she come she came from a strong uh, Christian family, and so you know that didn't just disappear when when they started this movement. That that kind of character and those ethics of coming from the black church. He witnessed all of that. He witnessed her spirituality, and that definitely had a great impact on him. Um, in his own level of spirituality and sincerity, but also in his regard for women. And so, yeah, so I de- in the book, I definitely spend time on talking about his um, kind of devotion and definitely regard for, to, for women. Talk a little bit about, I guess, the gender outlook um, at the time of Sister Clara Muhammad and Nation of Islam. Uh, you mentioned, for example, that in uplifting African-Americans, uh, there was, a, there was a, an ideology and, and certain practices put in place within the nation and in terms of how uh, women were perceived, there were certain things that they were done to counteract, I guess, what you could call certain stereotypes of black women. Like you talk about a a stereotype of the the, the, the mammy type uh, example or uh, the welfare mother type example and how the nation instituted certain things or had certain things in their ideology to counteract that. If you could talk a little bit about that and how that affected how uh, these black women were uh, in interacting within the nation. Right. So Sister Clara Muhammad, she was considered really like the um, the exemplar, the exemplary woman, this exemplary model of a woman. And part of that was it came through in the women's organization within the Nation of Islam, and that organization was or or class. It was really a class they called it. It was called MGT. CC, Muslim Girls Training and General Civilization class. And so essentially, they, they had very lofty names they had in the Nation of Islam, like the University of Islam. But essentially, it was a class that taught women how to be um, these exemplars, and it's particularly in the home, right? That was the domain of women. And so there was a great attention and care to keeping a beautiful, orderly home, uh, to raising your children to um, being resourceful, so meaning all the women knew how to sew. My mom tells stories of how she sewed um, bow ties and my father would go out and sell them in the streets, you know, so they sewed and um, and cooking, of course, and out of that great tradition and focus came the bean pie. So, uh, you know, these were dom- domestic duties, but they really honored them and elevated them in ways that really became a hallmark of the nation of Islam. And so I, what you talk about with you, you know, your question raises um, really what I found to be the most exciting thing about this exploration. And that was looking at how these appearingly um, kind of oppressive or definitely kind of traditional, not progressive Uh, gender roles, how the Nation of Islam was celebrating those roles and promoting those roles for women, and how, again, on the surface, this didn't seem very progressive or didn't seem very revolutionary, right? But in reality, for Black women, and given their history and their context, you know, taking on the domestic and taking on these traditional gender roles was actually quite feminist, as I, I would call it. And it was quite feminist in the sense that they were, by doing, by claiming these roles, 
they were resisting um, the kinds of images that you talked about, like the mammy image and the welfare image. Um, these uh, these derogatory images of black women, and 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 many, and they were also rejecting um, the realities of their lives. So, for instance, you know, black women have always had to work alongside their men. You know, during slavery, even when they were experiencing, you know, the pregnancy and breastfeeding, and, and I really like to talk about that. And I've written about it that quite a bit. And so uh, it didn't no it it didn't matter if you were a woman right like their their gender didn't matter in terms of the kind of work they had to do in the field as enslaved people, and then post slavery, um, they were continuing to have to do these menial tasks for uh, whites and and now in the domestic space at least that was one of the realms so even up to like the sixties you know, working as nannies and working as maids in white homes, that, you know, that was the dominant kind of work. And so when you think about that within that historical context, this, um, you know, this shift in the paradigm to say, no, you know, I'm going, instead of, um, you know, investing and working in somebody else's home or in the white people's home, I'm going to invest in my home and I'm going to elevate my home and I'm going to raise my own children because again, traditionally black women were having to leave their children to care for white children. So no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to educate my own children. So that is what I mean that it being actually a very feminist, a very revolutionary act in that sense. Um, and also in terms of, um, you know, again, the, the, these, well, also in terms of, um, embracing this idea that men are the ones who are the providers, right? That was also very empowering for women. I mean, in reality, many of these women still continued to work, uh, but, but, but many of them did not at the same time, especially not when their children were young. So, um, so this idea of men being the providers, again, very powerful and beneficial for these women because again, it gave them a sort of a break from doing the kind of work that they always had to do. And it even was empowering them to see uh, their men, you know, kind of fulfilling these leadership roles, you know. Um, so I just, so the, the kind of experiences that Black women have had, they, they, they look at these feminist ideals, especially these white feminist ideals, from a very different lens, you know, that when white women they for their feminism they were trying to go to work that's what their feminism was about where black women were already always working you're just gonna already immediately you have a different kind of a rationale underlying their feminism and so um so yeah so that's something that again like i said it was it was very exciting exploring that even in graduate school and and i continue to do it even with it's with Islam. So, so it's, so the nation of Islam, right. The black women's experience made them um, embrace the nation of Islam's gender practices, which was domestic work that it made them happy to embrace that. But then with the move to Sunni Islam, I, you know, you, using that same kind of theoretical framework that black women's unique histories make them appreciate certain types of gender roles that I, I argue that even in Sunni Islam, 
um, you know, black women can see some of these practices differently from what white women or even just what non-Muslim women might. So for instance, when it comes to dress, I've written about that is how dress and covering at this is a, is a, the Islamic practice is um, liberating for women who have been, um, who have this image, this, this hypersexualized image, right? And so um, given that, that, that image, again, that which stems from slavery, but still is reproduced even by our own selves, you know, in, in hip hop culture. And, um, but still, it's an, it still is a disparity or injustice in the way still that Black women are still seen as hypersexualized. So that, yeah, so that the, the practice of covering in Sunni Islam it still continues to um, be embraced by Black women because it's, again, fighting um, these systems of discrimination and oppression that, you know, stereotype and marginalize women. You mentioned, I guess, um, the struggle or the difficulty for, as African-Americans were um, fighting for their rights and uplifting their their, um, community, um, there's this other uh, gender dynamic that's going on. Um, So you have Black women who are fighting alongside, working alongside their male counterparts, but in, in, in many areas are subordinated to black men, to like a second class in that struggle. And then when they go in from the, to the feminist realm, they have a completely different experience um, from white women, and they're also seen as second class to the white women in the feminist movement. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and how that, how that played a role in, in how women's experiences in the nation of Islam. And then as... Uh, later on, as uh, the community transforms into uh, the worthy Muhammad community, what were some of those, were the restrictions in the nation of Islam for women? Um, and how did they change? Did they change over time? And how did it change even further with the leadership of Imam Worthy Muhammad? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So what you were referring to is intersectionality, right? And you, you referred to this in your introduction the way that uh, Black Muslim women, they take on all of these identities that are uh, marginalized identities, right? So they're, they're Black, they're Muslim, they're women, right? And, um, but at the same time, you know, even though that they, they cross all of these different identities, they are still not the, the ones wielding power in those groups. So they're always they're not, their, their concerns, their struggles are not prioritized, right? So, you know, as when it comes to the race, the struggle for Black liberation, right, men are the ones who are leading that. And, and, and then and a lot of that causes Black women to be invisible, right? Because even though, again, even though she's experiencing all of these struggles, um, no, she doesn't have the opportunity within these different movements, the, 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 the race, the, the movement, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, now, you know, the movement uh, for Muslims against Islamophobia, she doesn't have, she's not given the platform, right, to represent any of these groups. And she's made invisible, even though she's the one who's, again, um, being marginalized by all of them. And so certainly within the context of the Nation of Islam, there was, this was problematic in, in, in a sense, for sure, right? Because there were black men who were on the uh, podium and they were the black men were the ones who were out in the streets and they were very visible and selling the newspaper. 
right? And and so, you know, right. So their voices were not at the forefront. However, what we try to do in the book is show that um, there were structures in the Nation of Islam and also just the um, the will and um, kind of resourcefulness of women where they made their voices heard, right? Or they kind of did what they wanted to do. <laughs> so um, one, one structure that did kind of give women a platform was the MGT class. So um, even though it was just all women, and so they weren't necessarily asserting kind of leadership over men, it was still a powerful space because it was separate and because women could be the leaders of other women. So, um, so that meant that they did, they, their, their concerns were recognized, you know, to probably to a certain extent. Right. And, um, you know, yeah, there was a space where they could, you know, at times they could interpret or reinterpret or get what, what the, what the nation of Islam's ideology and rules were for themselves. Right. So it did kind of give them that leeway, but also with the school, um, certainly, there were many women as early as the 50s who were directors or assistant directors of the um, elementary and um, the, the school, the University of Islam. And then also because of the business initiative in the Nation of Islam, you know, doing for self, that was the model of the nation. And so so the idea is that when, whenever um, and, 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 and working towards that goal of entrepreneurship and independence, you know, it didn't really matter whether you're a man or a woman if you had something to offer, right? And so women did have their own businesses. And again, they were making contributions, like with the, the bean pie, for instance. And so also, uh, I tell the stories that I first heard from my mom about the ways, too, that they did resist um, the way that they were confined to the domestic space. And I mean, actually, many of them were working. And then also, you know, the Nation of Islam changed you know, as the Nation of Islam grew and as time passed, you know, there were more educated, college-educated, uh, you know, college-educated women who were joining the Nation of Islam in 1970, so. Right, in general, there, there was a, uh, not to interrupt you, but there, in general, there was a, a really a socioeconomic um, upward shift as well, right? Exactly, right. There was, um, just by the nature of I, what was going on in the larger society, like with affirmative action. I, I, my mom was among that generation of African-American students who were, uh, you know, who were getting full scholarships to universities. And my mom was at a predominantly white university in Pennsylvania. And then she actually left to go um, to the Nation of Islam. So, but there were many who did, you know, fulfill, finished school. But yeah, exactly. That there was that shift just because of advancements in the larger society. So you were seeing that in, in, in the Nation of Islam as well. So, um, but just just in general, you saw ways that women were able to um, either, you know, interpret things for themselves or create spaces. Like we talk about fashion shows that women had, or you know, through the women were raising money for the the temple. And of course, that was always embraced. So, so there were ways that they were defying um, just being in the home. They weren't just being in the home. And then also another important space was a newspaper as well. And you had women. They, they weren't out on the street selling, but there were women columnists. There were a few of them. Yeah, I think it was also interesting in your book how you talk about, for example, the fashion of uh, the, the women in, in the Nation of Islam who had this um, 
this very unique and striking um, attire and how, um, as the women explain, um, they considered it difficult, not in the sense that a lot of outsiders would in, in how they maybe they perceive the hid or the head covering or, or the uniform as, as, a, as something oppressive, but uh, actually quite the opposite. Um, the, the, what they found difficult about it was the, the difficulties we would uh, ascribe to someone who's trying to be as fashionable as possible, like the, 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 the difficulty in maintaining high fashion. Um, uh, so that was quite interesting. Exactly. But even though they were a little bit uncomfortable, I, they also then set the tone for Black Muslim women's fashion and the kind of influence that they would have. And I don't know if you read the blog piece that I did in response to the um, the Dean Squad. I did not. No, I'm, I didn't. Right, the Dean Squad video because there were not as many Black or, and Brown faces that we would have liked. And, uh, and so I wrote a piece that, that talked about the ways that Black women were the leaders in uh, making the hijab fashionable. And that started with the Nation of Islam. And right, true, it's like wearing high heels. Like it's fashionable and it looks good, but it does, it's not always comfortable. And so, um, yeah. So, I mean, all of this is important. I think you know, people, maybe some listeners are wondering why we're talking about elements of the Nation of Islam, because all of this, it feeds into the current generation that we're in now. I mean, you're talking about your parents' generation that was from uh, the, the generation that was shepherded from the Nation of Islam and then into the, the work in Muhammad community. And all of that plays a role in, you know, in, in who we are today as uh, as African-American Muslims, as immigrant Muslims, or uh, as just uh, any other groups. So, I mean, let's move now to the transitioning to the Imam Worthy Muhammad and, uh, community and how, as, as you mentioned earlier, about how through his experiences with his mother and having that very close relationship with her and how he affected his own vision of, of gender, uh, his own gender outlook, how, what were some of the changes that were introduced when Imam Worthy Muhammad um, changed, uh, you know, took leadership of the nation, converted it into a, an Orthodox Sunni um, group? And how did that affect um, women? How did women respond to that change uh, from a theologic perspective? And then also uh, on the ground, were there any changes that were made in terms of how um, uh, women were uh, stood in the organization in terms of their activities and other things that changed for them? Right. So women were very happy with the, the theological changes. And I say that, but I still have to recognize, obviously, there were people who left the nation. Uh, and who were not, there were people who were not happy, but there were overwhelmingly numbers who were, and uh, many who, who, who never really fully embraced the race ideology that the black man was God and the white man was the devil, right? That they really embraced the nation of Islam because of its economic um, advancement and its, you know, its cultural, positive cultural messages about black people. And they just kind of, kind of, you know, just accepted the other part of it, but it's not, they didn't really believe it. So it was very liberating for them to finally um, have a theological uh, teaching that, um, that, 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 that spoke to them and that they felt comfortable with and really was very akin to what they were taught as Christian women. My mom talks about how they couldn't believe that there were angels in the nation of Islam. And so then with Sunni Islam, they could believe in angels again. And so that is very fulfilling for her as one example. So um, so that theological shift, women embraced it just like the men did. You know, it wasn't, um, it was just equally, that was equally liberating. And probably the most important 
thing that Imam Warthi Muhammad did for them, they would probably say, it just taught them a true and real understanding of Allah and the Prophet Muhammad. And then, sallam, and then, um, but beyond that, and what I discovered and was very pleased with in the, in the research was that Imam Muhammad, his, what he, his contribution and his transition was not just about this theological shift, but also um, gender was very central to what he did from the very beginning. And so, um, you know, one, he did change the infrastructure of the Nation of Islam because, you know, a lot of it was corrupted or just not making sense for them financially anymore. And 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 it's some right. It was just some of the structure. The the leadership was very. Um, it was oppressive, in that people were required, for example, to sell a number of, of of newspapers, and so he wanted to do away with forcing people to meet these kinds of these these nation of Islam mandates. He really freed people uh, to be independent. And you know, if you're going to work for the community, do it for do it because you want to, not because you're forced. So he got he he removed mentality and part of that. Then he also removed the fruit of Islam, which was the, or, the men's organization that sold the newspapers. And then he also dismantled the Muslim girls' training. And um and part of that too was that he made a shift from this focus on the domestic space to uh, women's larger com- contribution. He in in society and he started an organization called um, the Committee for the Enhancement of Women's Roles in Society. Like he. He came up with that idea. Um, so he did that. He started, he encouraged men and women to go back to, to work because, again, um, they were, at least at certain times in the nation, they were discouraged from working for the white man. And so, you know, he encouraged them, you know, go back into the mainstream, right? That uh, this is this is how we are going to be successful. We can't be isolated in this way. Uh, so to go back to work, many went back to school. My mother, for instance, went back to school. Um, so that, so you, those are some of the on-the-ground structural changes. But two that I really like to highlight is from the very beginning, he uh, appointed a woman as uh, editor of the Muhammad Speaks newspaper, which then eventually will be changed to the Bilalian newspaper. And so this is the first time a woman was in that position. And, uh, and then he also named a woman a woman minister and I know she was not a minister over an entire mosque. She wasn't running a, a temple or a mosque, but he, he just the very fact that he gave her that label uh, of um, female minister, I think it was, but minister was in the title. And what she would do is uh, she would do a column in the newspaper and she would also minister over women. Um, but, uh, but in general too, he, he eventually he started, I think even before they took on the name Imam as the title, they he I think he started a um a, a minister's class that included the women, and then it became an Imam's class that also was open to women. And he wanted to make it very clear that women um, had, of course, you know, the same kind of um, spiritual intellectual capacity as men, and that they needed to be teachers. They needed to study the religion for themselves, and uh, and be given the platform to teach. Um, the religion. And so um, just, and then finally, in general, men, for men and women, he taught them to think for themselves, to read and study Islam for themselves, to not rely on him, to be independent thinkers. And, I, and you still see that in our community today. 
Yeah, and I think you know that's part of the genius of the Imam Rafi Muhammad Rahimullah, not given enough credit um, by the immigrant Muslim community because a lot of things you just mentioned. I mean, uh, for example, uh, a first female editor uh, of Muhammad Speaks, um, or the changing of the focus on just women's domestic um, role, which is important, but also focusing on the role in in um, uh, the external society. Um, these are things like in 1975, right? I mean, this is this is a long time ago, um, but these are still a lot of issues that that uh, as the broader Muslim American community is struggling with of gender dynamics, of uh, inclusion of Muslim in, in the masjid. This is these are still issues that are going on now. But a lot of those the solutions that were I guess were were considering now they were already uh, put in place uh, in a lot of ways by Imam Wardeen. Muhammad, you know, back in in the mid seventies. So it's a very interesting, interesting thing of history, but also very sad because uh, uh, by not well, looking at that experience, you know, the the whole community at large is is really missing out on the benefits that we can learn from what has already occurred and and how we can learn from that. Right. I was happy to find out when I was at ISNA this year. I met Imam Omar Suleiman, and you know, he also teaches at a university. And um, he's doing a civil rights course, and he's using women of the nation. Oh, mashallah. So, so yeah, I was really pleased with that, and that there are many, you know, who do appreciate and understand the importance of teaching others about this this history. And um, right, and like you were saying in the beginning, like we are we are pioneers in Islam in America, and we can we we really need to continue to draw from the wisdom. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you look at, for example, even like Imam Wahdi, like you know, he he was he was sending uh, students um, for scholarships abroad. I mean, he was trying to create American Muslim scholars. You know, when I was growing up, I mean, I grew up in you know the you know uh, in the eighties and and nineties, and this was not something that was really on the radar. It was something that was you know okay. Uh, what do you mean by an American Muslim? You know, what do you mean by an American Muslim scholar, like native to America? I mean, it was everything was from abroad, right? But he was already talking about all of these things that you know now is sort of this is like you know the the norm now. We talk about cultivating American Muslim scholarship and and uh, you know inclusion of women in in uh, the communities. Not uh, and yet he was he and and that community were doing that from. Uh, a very long time. And of course, it wasn't, of course, and, and you mentioned in your book, it, there was resistance to this. You talk about, for example, like uh, the, the the editor of, um, I think it was with the editor of Muhammad Speak. You talk, I think she even mentioned that there was some resistance to this increased role of women, I guess you could say, in, in the public sphere. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I think you mentioned, I, there's one example, I think, that I remember. Uh, right. You talk about this one, uh, one, one, one interview. I think she says, she she talked, I guess, with the minister about like we should just have the eat together, like all the different sort of different um, uh, mm-hmm. mosques, and, and they basically just sort of like you know ignored it. And then like I think it was like years later they they decided to do it. And her feelings that they just didn't take it seriously because it was coming from a woman. And this is I think something that a lot of people in the Muslim community or community can I guess can um, very much uh, connect with because this is a, a recurring theme where just because yeah. it was coming from a woman, even though it was a great idea. It, it it's it kept the community. I'm what I'm saying is it kept the community held back for those years until they decided the men decided years later. Oh, maybe it is a good idea to bring the eats together for everybody. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that of the resistance and how women dealt with that resistance. Right, and it's still relevant today because so it was important to bring that out because like broadly speaking, especially when you compare the Wardi Muhammad communities to immigrant communities, like I did in my first book, 
broadly speaking, is very progressive, and the women, you know, have these rights and all that. And 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 again, they really do um, love their communities and are thriving in their communities. But that does not mean that they're 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 constantly um, struggling against um, <laughs> or they they have yeah they're 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 tensions at times between women and women leaders and women organizations and mosque leadership. And um, and you saw it, you gave one example of it. Uh, there even example I gave with service, which again was an organization that Imam Wardi Muhammad uh, created. But when women were trying to do this in their local masajid, even here in Atlanta, they were getting resistance. And again, it wasn't direct, but it would be indirect. The case I gave was that it, a woman said that every time service plan an event, it always seemed like there was another mosque event going on. And so, and the ways that they would negotiate that is uh, sometimes they would just have their event outside of the mosque. And we see that going on now or today, you know, one masjid, because there are like at least three, maybe at least two Warthi Muhammad masjids in, in Atlanta now. So like I've seen women organizations where for whatever reason, their imam is not open to them doing a certain event. They will just go to the other masjid, Right. So um, again, I mean, I don't really feel, I don't think that that's the dominant um, tone of our communities, but at the same time, those, those things are existing. Right. And um, yeah. And, and definitely any, any time women begin to speak about some of these tensions, there definitely is resistance or not giving women a platform to do that. And um, even also on just on the broader, on the national scale, like when we look at Muslim women, Muslim, Black Muslim women are at the forefront of social justice work. I'll give you one example is Camila Mutman Rashad of the Wellness Foundation, the, the Muslim Wellness Foundation. And, um, you know, so Black women are at the forefront. And I still feel like we are, we are still made invisible or not given platforms or not invited to, you know, certain events and things like that. And so there, there has been definitely movement to increase women's presence, increase Black women's presence, but there's still a lot of work that can be done in that area. And um, I do feel like some of these Muslim organizations feel threatened in many ways. And one, and one way they feel threatened, I believe, is to the way that we use um, some of the social justice um, resistance language. You know, we we take many of us claim feminism. We feel comfortable um, ascribing to it, even though we define we redefine it to make it Islamic. I feel that there's a there's still some resistance to that, and uh, so yeah, the struggle continues. Um, but you know, again, we we can we we basically continue this legacy of our mothers and 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 women who are not uh, Muslim. That this legacy of Black women having um, this intersection of identities and kind of and, and fighting through that and fighting in various organizations and fighting for de- various causes. You talk about in your book towards the end about uh, the dialogue between women in the uh, Worthine Muhammad community and women in the current nation of Islam. And while, you know, while not really focusing on the current nation of Islam uh, right now, at least in this discussion, um, you know, there's a general unease uh, for, for for Sunni Muslims for uh, about interacting or engaging with uh, the, uh, the the current nation of Islam. Uh, there's you know there there's an unease there 
about um, uh, the the you know the heterodox positions in, in its in its theology, uh, but then at the same time, there is uh, you know the, the nation of Islam as it as it currently is is still prominent in uplifting African American communities in general with that focus. So, what would you say about navigating that in terms of allyship with people in the current nation of Islam for Sunni Muslims today? Yeah, there are are many. We're starting to see new developments and efforts in that, and um, on a national scale or or, or through certain events. Um, so, so for instance, one and 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 so one like the Nation of Islam recently has done what they called um, the Dean Intensive. It has Dean Intensive in it. I can't think of the exact label, but they've had people like Imam Siraj. And um, another popular black imam, I can't think of his name now, Abdul Malik. And so, so they've had some sort of high profile uh, Muslim leaders and, you know, who are legitimate or who, what I mean is that if we see them working with the Nation of Islam, you know, we're less likely to question it. You know, someone like Imam Raj, right? And so um, there, there definitely has been that type of effort. Uh, for instance, with Sapelo, you know, um, the on, Sapelo Square, the online resource for African American right, Muslims, yeah. or about African American Muslims, when they did the um, the juice every day, yes, for um, during Ramadan, the juice reflections, there were a few of those that were written by ministers or women in the Nation of Islam. Okay, so um, I think because of the climate again that we're in, again, you know, again, a lot of hatred towards Muslims, but also again towards Black people. We just realized for our own survival and um, strategy that we need to come together despite these differences. Now, also what's going on too that helps that, which I talk about in the book, is that also the the theology of the nation right. of Islam has changed. Yeah. Right? So they're not going around saying, for instance, man is the devil. And, and they're, you know, they have these sophisticated explanations for, you know, why Elijah Muhammad said it. So they know how to you know, not say, not say it anymore, but at the same time, not reject what Elijah Muhammad said. They, they maintain their reverence for him. Um, but also, you know, Mr. Farrakhan, he's really adept at, um, you know, at, at addressing an audience and speaking to an audience, depending on whether, you know, it's, he's at, he's at an interfaith black event, or if he's speaking to Sunni immigrants, Sunni Muslims, right? He, he's adept at, at, at making um, his words in the Nation of Islam palatable. So he, there's definitely a sense that they are progressing towards Sunni Islam. Well, that, I mean, not, not to cut out, but I mean, I think for a lot of people, that's also a lot of the frustration because uh, Farrakhan does a lot of gymnastics in this regard. You know, it seems like every, I don't know how long it's been, like 15, 20 years, he's been saying that he's, you know, this, coming towards uh, what we would consider Sunni Islam, but it, it, the whatever audience that he's playing to, it, it seems that the message changes. Like, as you said, like he says a certain message to a certain audience. So I think a lot of people maybe are confused or frustrated by this in that, okay, the where, where, who are the nation of Islam? Or, and do you feel that there's, uh, there's obviously a lot of diversity within the nation of Islam itself. So there's going to be some uh, people in the nation of Islam who may hold more orthodox beliefs than others. Would that be a fair statement? Right. In the nation of Islam. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And and that when we talk about that, um, 
that also what makes it a great area too, because within the membership, there are different levels of understanding. And, and part of that's too, because of um, the internet and also the abundance of Sunni Muslims everywhere, we didn't have that type of presence um, in the 1960s, right? But now people know, all, they know about Islam, the different you know approaches and perspectives in, in, in Islam, so people can study on their own. So you do have these different level of practice and understand, and and certainly too, um, yeah, I would say members of the Wardi Muhammad community are probably the most um, skeptical or um, impatient, or 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 just not really even at this point, not really. They're just not interested, right, in in uh, <laughs> what Minister Farrakhan is doing. Sure. Because, because they, they have this feeling like you know we've been there before and um, been there, they, done that, right? They, they, yeah, and they really need yeah they really need to go ahead and get with the program that kind right. of thing. So, uh, so yeah, I was I in fact I wonder if more of this work this alliance building is done between the Nation of Islam and non WD Muhammad Sunni Muslims. It's hard to tell. It, mm-hmm. it probably, is. but um, yeah. Well, one of the things I thought was actually interesting um, um, from an immigrant Muslim perspective, actually, in how you talk about this dialogue between uh, nation women and the nation of Islam and women and the worthy Muhammad community, was the perception that nation a lot of nation women had towards worthy uh, the worthy Muhammad community, uh, Muslim women, Sunni Muslim women, um, about for certain gender restrictions in the mosque. Um, and their perception that uh, women had a second class in Sunni Islam, a lot of it was derived from their experiences or what they had seen in, in immigrant-dominated um, uh, mosques. For example, like you know, a severe gender segregation or certain limitations in uh, women's uh, activities in the masjid. So looking at from an immigrant Muslim point of view, I thought it was quite interesting that it was uh, the failings of the immigrant Muslim communities and uh, general gender dynamics that affected how um, not uh, these women in the nation of Islam perceived even their the the the, the women in the worthy Muhammad community. Right. That, I mean, that was one of the most fascinating parts of my research was to the, to see these tensions between Black and immigrant Muslims coming up. It's kind of you know what I was exploring in my first book to see how its impact on um, the way that the Nation of Islam, the, the impact of, the, its impact on the Nation of Islam and their ability to move towards Sunni Islam, right? I think that was quite eye-opening and uh, disappointing too. Uh, one of my um, most striking interviews, and I, I I retell her, I tell her story in an article for Sapelo Square, was a woman named Khalila Muhammad in Chicago, who actually first was a, she converted to Sunni Islam but then because of the negative experiences she was having in a mosque where, you know, just the women weren't welcoming her. And then, um, yeah, she, so she, the discrimination, the racism that she experienced in this majority immigrant mosque, coupled with the fact that I guess there were, there was a, a, a nation of Islam presence at her university and they were recruiting. So this opportunity to, you know, see another possibility uh, under Islam and then also when she saw a female minister, Ava Muhammad, um, that really made the Nation of Islam more appealing to her. And so she actually left Sunni Islam for the Nation of Islam. 
And so, you know, that case just really spoke to how we, you know, our communities have to do better. And, and right. And so, and, and though, you know, from my perspective, it's very clear that the Wardley Muhammad community is not an immigrant influenced community compared to other Black Sunni communities. Nonetheless, from the Nation of Islam perspective, you know, it pretty much is aligning itself with these immigrant communities. And so, um, you know, many of them hold on to the Nation of Islam because of its commitment to Black, um, you know, Black communities and um, Black struggle. So it, that, that was quite interesting to see, what, you know, how the nation, why, why it's still relevant today and the information. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and from like a, for say, if like from a, a Dawah perspective, it, it's really sort of a wake up call, I think, for American Muslim community in that, like, look at these two issues. And number one, whether or not we are standing up for the African-American community and, and those issues or whether we're not or whether we still harbor a lot of internal racism. And number two, and how we treat women in the community. Those two big issues are two major obstacles as you point out, for a lot of people in the currently in the nation to really take that that step forward into Sunni Islam, so uh, we can talk a lot about about, about the you know, heterodoxy of the nation of Islam, and that's absolutely valid. But we also have to look at ourselves in terms of what of our own example is making um, people in the nation or other people as well, other people around us, have a negative feeling towards Sunni Orthodox Islam. I think it's it's definitely very interesting for us that we need to look at it that way. Exactly. Yeah, I've written somewhere, I think, in a, post, a blog post, not just in my personal writings, but that, right, it's gender and class are, are the two issues that really determine how American Muslims are going to make themselves relevant. Like, it's, we really have, the way that we approach those issues, um, you know, our success really depends upon that. So you've had a lot of interactions in your research with both um, Black Muslim women as well as, uh, quote unquote, immigrant Muslim women. You've also mentioned how a lot of Muslim immigrant women could benefit a lot from learning about the experiences and, and the path and the journey of, of black Muslim women. Um, if you could talk a little bit about that and talk about how that knowledge of this narrative of black Muslim women or these learning about these experiences, how that can help in the engagement of uh, the immigrant community with especially that the Warathi Muhammad community, because I think as we mentioned in the beginning, as both the immigrant Muslim community in the in the seventies was starting to develop, as, as there was in parallel, the Warathi Muhammad community was was continuing on, and they both sort of progressed in parallel. Uh, there was not really an inter uh, interplay between them, uh, and that still exists really in a lot of ways today. So, if you could talk a little bit about that, and and how particularly learning about these these narratives, how that can play a role in creating more and uh, interaction between the two groups. I mean, I think first, generally, um, you know, Americans in general need to know the stories of Black women is that, you know, really profiling Black Muslim women is critical to changing the image of Islam in the U.S. And because, you know, the, the one of the two main two ways that Islam is portrayed, it's portrayed as a foreign faith and it's portrayed as a faith that's oppressive to women. And so when we begin to tell Black women's stories and when they become the, um, the image of Islam in America, 
one, you know, we are resisting this idea that Islam is foreign because Black women built this nation, you know, alongside their men. And and second, uh, we're also defying the image of Muslim women as oppressed because Again, um, you know, one of the, the, it's a stereotype of Black women, but there's also a lot of truth in it. But, you know, there, there, there's definitely an image of Black women as very independent and very strong. You know, we take a look at our, our models or exemplary women like Harriet Tubman, right? So um, we, when you begin to see Muslim women as, as Black Muslim women, it really does change the way, begin to change the way that we think about um, Islam in America. And I think it's important for for immigrant women and their children to to want to just even know these stories um you know i i had i formed many um relationships and friendships with women that i could that persists to this day and i think for many and, and, and these are second generation american women and i think um for them just knowing our stories they I, that's empowering for them, right? Because yeah, we are uh, our communities are not as united as they need to be. Still, they can claim this narrative, right? And uh, so I think just like psychologically and emotionally, that but you know they can claim um, this is their legacy. That that I think that does a lot for them. I think you know you mentioned um, Hajar, my sister and I started a blog. Uh, called Hadjar Lives, or we, we as we use the G Hagar Lives, and um, again, it's inspired. It, it's inspired by the idea that Hagar, her experience resonates with Black women. That uh, you know, she was left in the desert without uh, without her husband, right? And that that is one of the struggles of Black women, you know, starting with slavery, right? So you know, we we do this blog. And my sister in particular, you know, her writings are very um, candid. And I mean, she, she, there, she, she shares what, as one of my Daisy friends said, you know, what, what all of us are feeling, but none of us would ever say it. <laughs> so, so again, I think um, that, that is um, cathartic for these women because my sister, even though it's a black woman, a lot of her, experiences or or definitely the way that she's finding um you know a sense of solace and and um it, the way that she's finding some happiness and and and, and victory in it you know it's, it's through islam right so it's 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 empowering for these other women to see black women living their faith right and to be connected to that. So, I mean, I think that's one of the most immediate ways that I've been experiencing it lately, but also uh, when it comes to dress, right? I mean, now you see second and third generation South Asian Arab, African Muslims who are, um, you know, who are wearing very fashionable, you know, American inspired, but also um, you have a little bit of, you you know, other cultural uh, influences in their dress. And you just see a lot of creativity with their covering. And again, this was, I this was something that we were leaders in, you know. So I definitely think that um, we that that's like that's one of the ways that uh, another example of um, Black women kind of setting a foundation for being proud of this your identity as a Muslim, as an ethnic minority, 
in the United States. And then, and just like, and I just again, generally, the way that both men and women from immigrant communities can benefit from the Warthi Muhammad community, I think, really does relate to some of what we've talked about. The ways that you know we that we can be um, we could be independent thinkers, right? That we have to be strategic and practical, and also um, even just and merciful and loving in our relationship with people who are not Muslim, right? Um, you know, one thing that, uh, and again, an advantage that African-Americans have, Muslims have, is that, you know, we do have, we have, you know, we have members of the, our family who are not Muslims, you know, who are Christian. So um, I think even, so so we've kind of been, have we've had a lot of experience, hands-on experience, with, um, you know, relating to people of other faiths, um, right, you know, expressing our faith in ways that uh, is appealing. And so, so it's a lot of that just comes second nature for us, because we that's what we've been doing forever. So uh, I think just, you know, those, those kinds of conversations between African Americans and Muslims of other background, I think um, we can definitely uh, become more effective like as you mentioned in our Dawa work, or just um, or just being people, just being neighbors, just being um, you know people who are living this faith, uh, but we're we're just like you know other Americans. So I think um, and just you know working towards that, I think that those kinds of relationships are beneficial. And again, you know, as I try to say in the in the book, in the first book, I'm like the tone I try to say is that there there there's mutual benefit, right? And so I just want to always, you know, speak to that and encourage that, that all of us bring something unique uh, to this experience. But again, but certainly um, just by very nature of the of Black women's experiences where, like I said, you know, we're crossing all these different identities that are marginalized. We're just going to have a level of sensitivity um, and concern and we're going to be more likely to ally ourselves with others. And I, and we're living in a time when our, you know, um, alliance building and mutual understanding, it's just like, it's critical, like for our survival. So I think, uh, yeah, Black Muslim women can, are definitely a model in that. And I, I, I'm assuming you would also agree that there's a flip side in terms of, in terms of the mutual benefits involved between the immigrant and uh, Black Muslim engagement is that immigrant community has to take on the mantle of allyship with the with the broad African American community and African American Muslims as, and specifically as well in resisting you know white supremacy resisting this racism in our society both within within the Muslim community itself as well as in the broader uh, broader sense and um, and this goes it goes to what maybe you were saying earlier about how there is this legacy that um, that immigrant Muslims can can share but um, as um, as uh, I heard once from uh, Dr. Sawad Abdul-Khabir, she said, if you're going to claim that legacy as, as an immigrant Muslim, you have to have a real relationship with especially the black Muslim community. And there was one thing I read that on, on your blog that I think really connects to that. Um, and you're talking about how many many of us, we, we, we love Muhammad Ali, Rahimullah, and, and Malcolm X, Rahimullah. Um, and there's definitely um, a love for those two people. Um, throughout the world, especially in, in the American Muslim community. But you mentioned how 
just because uh, there is that love for Muhammad Ali, the love for Malcolm X, that doesn't make us necessarily down with the African-American community. And you said, and I'll quote you here, it says, rather it means, the, meaning the love for Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, rather it means that Allah has chosen uh, white immigrant Muslims to be leaders in recognizing what has been done to black people in this country and that it is your moral duty to truly be a brother and sister with black people and that God has given you an advantage in the fight for and with black people by putting love for Ali and Ali and Malcolm in your hearts. And I thought that was very powerful because it speaks to a, a spiritual component of what we're talking about. Uh, I, as we close here, I, I'd sort of like you touch on some of the looking at things through a spiritual lens in terms of how we can move forward in um, developing increased engagement between the two sub-communities uh, and what, what needs to be done if for us to really succeed in that spiritually. Right. Yeah. Um, we, we really have to do that heart and soul work because, you know, that's really, that's the fundamental work, you know, that the, the, the prophetic statement that none of you truly believes that your, your faith is not complete until you love for your brother or your sister what you love for yourself. And and, and, and that 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 statement is speaking to our hearts, right? And and our character, that that's what the Prophet Muhammad, prayers and peace be upon him, that that's what he says that he was sent for. He was sent to perfect character. And and through our hearts and establishing this real love for our brother and our sister in our hearts, that that's the only way that we are going to be able to resist uh, racism, you know, in our communities and in society, because, you know, this society was built upon racism. Uh, it, it's, it, it, it permeates every institution that we are part of. So it has to be a deliberate um, resistance. And, and, you know, scholars of race have written about this. It, it has to be intentional. And so for for that kind of work, you know, what's required of us and and the challenges that we face, that we can only do that successfully with uh, with Allah and with um, reliance in Allah, with um, help from Allah, with pleading to Allah, asking from Allah. And and that's one of the things that I, I spoke at ISNA and I, I always make it a point, like no matter what they tell me to speak about, I'm going to incorporate race and gender. And, you know, and I asked, like, how many of us have really prioritized that struggle? How many of us have really asked from Allah to unite our hearts, right? And, um, and so we, we have to ask from Allah and we have to really embody um, the example or aspire to embody the example of our beloved Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, um, that, you know, that was one of the miracles that he brought, right? And by Allah, because Allah says that he was, he, that Allah says that he is the one who unites hearts, right? And that, uh, but that, that is a feature of, 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 of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu leadership was that he came to a community in Medina, a community that there were clans that had been war, at war with each other for generations. And so these people who were enemies uh, became brothers and sisters. And, and not only, I mean, the, and, and, and exceptional brothers and sisters, right? And where they were willing to give up everything for their brother and their sister. And so, and so one of the points though, that I made at ISNA was that when we look at the Sarah and the, the life of the Prophet Sallallahu you know, there is at the center of it, you know, there's this battle, right? Uh, between the disbelievers, between the Quraysh and, and the Muslims, right? And so, um, so there's this, 
this outward struggle, right, that's going on. But before the Muslims fought that struggle, that kind of that outward struggle, they had to first fight an inner struggle, right? And um, before they fought that struggle against um, the Quraysh, who had, you know, removed them from their homes in Mecca, before they fought that that epic fight, they their hearts were first united, right? That 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 was um, the first struggle to overcome. And then once that they were brothers and sisters in that struggle, then they became, then they were able to successfully fight the outward enemy, right? And and one of our Sufi scholars, I think it was Al-Junaid, who said that, that before you can effectively fight the enemy, the external enemy, you have to fight the enemy within. And that's, you know, that's our, our inner desires, right? And then the, the, the extent to which we're successful at fighting those desires, those inner ones, then we can effectively fight these outward obstacles. So for, for Muslims, for American Muslims, and even for the early Muslims, what it was, their, their internal struggle was, it's first the struggle of, of uniting the hearts. So, you know, how can we effectively fight the outward enemy? How can we effectively fight against Islamophobia? You know, everybody is racing to think about ways that, you know, we can resist Trump and all the white supremacists and, and, and clear like that, that is, it, that's real. And that battle is, um, it's immediate and it's real, but we first are going to have to, um, our hearts first have to be united before we can effectively do that. And, um, and, and we're in a situation where we have to do both at the same time. <laughs> and, and, and I think, but that's the beauty of what's happening now is that the external fight is motivating us <laughs> like you know to, to, to do the inner work and so um so we have we have yeah we have both of those battles <laughs> to do and um you know i think with the the model of our prophet and um just the beautiful legacy that we have um the leaders that allah SWT has given us in our communities uh and then those are our our, our allies i think we we can do that work well, mashallah, thank you very much. Um, that's a great way to, uh, I think, sum up the program today. Um, Dr. Kareem uh, is the author, again, just to, to remind listeners of uh, two books. One is The Women of the Nation Between Black Protest and Sunni Islam. That's the one we were talking a lot about today. And then also American Muslim Women Negotiating Race, uh, Class, and Gender. Uh, Dr. Kareem, before you go, uh, is, um, is there anything else down uh, uh, that we should be looking out uh, in the future that uh, you're doing? Or, and how can people um, follow your work? So yeah, I am working on a third book, and um, it's going to be not an academic book. It's going to be on influenced by Islamic spirituality, but it's on the the topic of love. So my favorite topic. So because <laughs> it's funny, you know, whenever I do a talk, most of my talks are on my work, my work, my books on race and gender, and so inevitably or i always get people people always ask you know what are you doing next like i guess like you've just asked <laughs> so so i laugh sometimes i think that you know what i'm going to be doing next is very different from what i'm doing now so i think people will be surprised but in the same way in in, in other ways it was very similar though because um i definitely i want to continue to explore love is particularly from this concept of loving uh love for the sake of allah right and 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 loving in, in ways um, that we don't normally think about or, or, and, or loving 
people <laughs> um, or in, in ways that we might think about, right? And so so hearts coming together, right? And so that, that in many ways, that's still an extension of my work on uh, African-American and, and immigrant Muslims and their children. So so that's what I'm, you know, I'm working on, make dua for me. Um, and then, yeah, I, I continue to blog with for Hagar Lives and occasionally for, for race, gender, faith. I'm not as consistent. But, um, you know, I, I've done Sapelo Squares, Jewish Reflections. Um, this was their second year, so I'm going to try to continue with that. So I'm doing a few things for Sapelo. So. Great. Well, I'd like to thank you for uh, taking the time on your busy schedule and joining us uh, uh, today for this very uh, enlightening uh, and important discussion. And I want to thank, of course, our listeners again for joining us. If you haven't um, already, please subscribe to the podcast. If you're listening to us on iTunes, uh, please leave a review. Um, give us a five-star rating. Uh, every uh, rating and review uh, really helps. You can always uh, give us feedback. at. Um, you can tweet at us at uh, Iman Wired. We hope to see you in the next episode. And until then, uh, peace be unto you. Assalamu alaikum.